Genesis chapter 50. I'll give you a minute to find the book. I know it's difficult to find in the Bible. Genesis 50, and I'll pick up reading in verse 14. Genesis 50, verse 14. After he had buried his father, that is Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Lord, I, uh, I am so thankful, first off, to come around the horn again and study through this remarkable beginning message of your grace and your love, your goodness, your mercy, your salvation, and Lord, your righteousness. So thankful to have walked through this again together as a fellowship. The blessing has been just incredible, Lord. And I thank you for giving us your word this morning. And I ask now that as we come to the conclusion of the beginning, the end of the beginning, that you would just bless this time Again, with fresh insight, Lord, revelation to our hearts. But I ask, as we often do, Father, for a revelation that changes our hearts, a revelation that expands our faith, not just our understanding, that increases our trust in you and deepens our ability, strengthens, Lord, our ability to simply follow after you to the very final day. And thank you for your word to us this morning. Holy Spirit, we come ready to hear you. Would you please teach us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I pray, we have come to the end of the beginning. You could call it the Aharit of Bereshit. Aharit, we talked about last week. The Aharit Yamim means the end of days. So Aharit means the end. Bereshit is that phrase. You may recall, you Bible students, the Hebrew word for Genesis. The Bereshit. Bereshit literally translates in the beginning. So in a Hebrew Bible, even today, you would open it up and the title page of the very first book would be Bereshit, in the beginning. And now we've spent some 40 weeks together walking through Genesis in this book of beginnings. 40 weeks for us, roughly 2,500 years of human history we have covered in this time. I'm gonna go over some things I said when we first opened this up. I want to do this by way of review and reminder, but in this time, across these weeks, we have looked at the beginning of the created universe, the beginning of the generations of mankind, the beginning of male and female gender, very clearly spelled out by the Lord, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of sin and free will. We've seen the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of faith and of following, the beginning of prophecy. Even the beginning prophetic word of the very rapture of the church is contained in Genesis. We've seen the beginning of not just one man's sin, but an entire earth, global corruption. 
seen the beginning of sailing and of rainbows, <laughs> of babbling and scattering. And from chapter 12 forward, we have witnessed the beginning of a people, the people of Israel, through whom came the Messiah, you know, Jesus, and perhaps the mountaintop moment of the entire book was the beginning of the first mention of the word love in the Bible on Mount Moriah, where a father, Abraham, illustrated the sacrifice of a son, Ishtak, the very thing Jesus, the Messiah, ultimately came to do. Genesis, filled with first mentions and, and beginnings, and like all good Pokemon champions, we've tried to catch them all. We followed the integrated outline of the toldotes. You Bible students, again, you remember what a toldot is, T-O-L-D-O-T. -O -O it's a rabbinical way of studying through Genesis, and it's very good because it's an embedded outline in the book itself. The toldot, the Hebrew word that means what became of. It's often translated in our Bibles, the record or the account of. But in the Hebrew, the toldot. And so it begins, and here they are, 11 of them in Genesis, in chapter two, verse four, the toldot of the heavens and the earth. What became of the heavens and the earth? And then secondly, in chapter five, verse one, the toldot of Adam. Chapter six, verse nine, the toldot of Noah. Chapter 10, verse one, the toldot of Noah's sons. What became of them? Then specifically, in chapter 11, verse 10, the toldot of Shem. Then we have, in chapter 11, verse 27, the toldot of Terah, which then translates to Abram or Abraham. Chapter 25, verse 12, we saw the toldot of Ishmael. Chapter 25, verse 19 and following, the toldot of Isaac. Chapter 36, verse one, the toldot of Esau. Chapter 36, verse nine, the toldot of Edom, which is the people of Esau. And then finally, chapter 37, verse two, the 11th toldot is the toldot of Jacob and his sons. And I pointed this out when we first considered this idea of tracking the toldots through Genesis, that there are just 11 of them, which falls short of a good biblical, not to mention Seahawks fan number, 12. The number 12. You 12s out there, hey, understand that 12 in the Bible is the number of divine governance, divine holy authority. By the way, side note, there's a lot of disagreement in the church as to what's going on in our world today. There's disagreement within this fellowship as far as what people think is happening, uh, what people see happening, how people perceive what's going on even in our country. I did a word bite last week talking about getting past the disagreements and being unified in the spirit. Let me just tell you real quickly, there is one way that a disparate and unique people, all with different attitudes, all with different ideas, can come together. There's only one way, that is under the divine governance of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is, regardless of what I think or less thinks, and there's this huge divide between the two of us, I joke. <laughs> not even close. But, but even were the two of us to be on opposite ends of the spectrum on any given issue, we come together under the divine governance of Jesus. He is the one who brings together. And so rather than trying to convince people to my side, I just talk about Jesus and we're in the same place. 
We share Jesus. Let that be what we share above all other things. By the way, that was free. I just gave that to you free this morning. You don't have to pay for that with the rest of the teaching. 12 means the divine governance. So there is a 12th toldot, which we pointed out before. 11 in the book of Genesis, you don't see another toldot in scripture until you get all the way down to Matthew chapter one, verse one, which is the record of the genealogy or in Hebrew, the toldot of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And when we come under his divine governance, we find peace and unity and truth and life, and I could go on. Jesus is the end of the toldots. Jesus is the one under whom we all rest, under whom we all stand, under whose authority we unite the 12th told out. Well, that's the genealogy that really matters, but we've tracked these all the way through. And now, as we come back to this final chapter, I'm reminded that when we started this whole journey back in September of 2019, we were asking a question. I asked it several times in the first several studies that we did through Genesis. And that question was, what does Genesis tell us about God? Not just the history, not just the, the information or the truths that are embedded and found throughout the book, but what does it tell us about God? How he created, how he showed himself righteous and true and gracious and loving. What does this tell us of God? And we've been seeing so much of the Lord in this. He's the focus of all scripture. What does this tell us about God? Well, here at the end, we've been asking a slightly different question. <laughs> What is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? We brought this up multiple times in the last few weeks. It's what Joseph's brothers asked. Lord, what are you doing to us? What is this that God has done to us? But we're asking the question, not like them. We're asking the question not from guilt or protest or complaint or worry. We're asking as a legitimate question, Lord, what are you doing to in through and among us right now? See, that's the right question in this season. Eyes on Jesus, Lord, what are you doing? Now, Joseph's brothers asked it a different way. What has God done to us? They ask it from guilt, from fear. You can look it up, chapter 42, verse 28. Fear that their sin had finally found them out, and it had. But as we get to Genesis chapter 50, 20 or so years later, they are still fearful. They're still worried. They're still stressing over this. And they're doing so because of what they just don't yet understand. And what's that? Forgiveness. They don't get grace. Sadly, there are so many in our world today who are just like this. I, I understand, having been one of them, it took me a long, long time in my life to comprehend grace. I kept thinking I had to earn it, I had to work for it, there had to be more I could do to get more of God's forgiveness, to wipe away my sin, and I couldn't wipe it away by all my effort, but grace, grace, when you get grace, everything changes. And yet, tragically, so many don't understand grace. They don't get forgiveness. They don't understand sacrifice. It makes no sense to the natural mind. 
Part of the problem is for it to even make sense, you gotta begin admitting that we're fallen, flawed, and sinful. And that's hard to do. People don't wanna admit that. Well, let's just clear it up for all of us right now. In Romans chapter three, verse 10, Paul writes, as it is written, he's about to quote Psalm 14 and Isaiah 53, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Then Paul draws after, after Psalm 5 and Isaiah, or, or Psalm 140, he says, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, Psalm 10, verse seven. Their feet are swift to shed blood, Isaiah 59, verse seven. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. And then he ends with Psalm 36, verse one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Is that clear? <laughs> verse 19, Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, and he just quoted a bunch of it, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. That's what the rules do. They remind us, they show us where we're out of line, where we're out of step, where we are flawed and sinful. But... Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, so simple, so powerful. He says, for all those who believe, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Propitiation, propitiation is the complete satisfaction of righteous indignation against unrighteousness. That is the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ satisfies God's righteous requirements that we could not satisfy. I said a few moments earlier that the blood of every person lost on battlefields, even fighting for truth and freedom, is not enough to satisfy the perfect righteousness of God, but the blood of Jesus did it. The blood of Jesus satisfies and cleanses and makes completely clean. I saw a beautiful Memorial Day post on Facebook last week. I, I just, I loved it. Um, it, was, it was a post of a picture of soldiers standing at the Vietnam Wall. If you've never been there, it is a profound place to visit. And uh, Cheryl and I, living near D.C. for several years, got to visit that more than once. Long, black, almost mirrored black wall with all the names of the soldiers who fell in Vietnam. Well, on this post, there are soldiers kneeling before that and there are those standing reading the names and you could see and they're dressed as soldiers on the right side of the wall looking into the wall. But then on the inside of the wall, you could see as it were soldiers standing there 
who had given their lives, looking back. Really interesting picture. And, and the caption underneath it read, for those behind the wall, it said, Memorial Day is for them. For those on this side of the wall, it said, Veterans Day is for them. And I thought that was so profound and such a statement of lives sacrificed, though still living, and lives sacrificed, though having died. And as I said earlier, just after communion, both have made extreme sacrifices for this country. But the ultimate sacrifice is always a life given for the sake of others. As Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than one lays down his life for his friends. And then he goes on to say, you are my friends if you do as I command. The laying down of a life is sacrifice. And those we memorialized this weekend made that sacrifice, died that we might live, gave their lives that we might have freedom, but again, limited because it's only so long as we live on this earth. It's only so long as we maintain freedom in this country. Many tears have been shed over lost husbands and fathers and sons and daughters and mothers and brothers and sisters, those who have given their lives. I wanna submit to you this morning that greater are the tears that are shed over someone who's lost. Not only having lost a life in this world, but someone who's lost for all eternity. Someone who doesn't comprehend grace, who rejects forgiveness, who is not able to recognize their own need and their own sinfulness. And I wonder if that's why Joseph wept. Genesis 50. Again, it's after the burial of Jacob and Joseph's brothers are fearing for their lives. They fear what they assume to be Joseph's pent-up retribution. He has to be holding back. He's got to be holding a grudge. Why would they think that way? Because they probably would. They think he's holding a grudge because that's what their hearts would do. That perhaps is where their hearts would go. And now with dad dead, there's no paternal buffer. There's no one to hide behind. There's no safety zone between us and Joseph, nowhere to run from our sin. Think about this. This is interesting to me. The parallels just in the book of Genesis from beginning to end, Genesis begins and ends with stories of brothers at odds. You go back to the beginning. This last story is a perfect bookend of this epic volume because early on we saw a brother lost because of a family schism that ended so badly, Genesis chapter four, verse nine, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Well, here in Genesis chapter 50, it's Joseph's brothers who are lost fearful of just such a bloody reprisal. He's gonna take them out and have them all hung. They're scared for their lives and it makes you wanna weep. Verse 14 again, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? The word grudge there is yistame and it translates 
to cherish animosity. (laughs) I thought that was interesting, and yet it's accurate. Some literally cherish their animosity. They relish their hostility. They cling to their bitterness. And this is their fear that maybe Joseph's in that place. They assume this long-standing grudge. And as I said, it's their own guilt talking. It's their own sins. They are still plagued by their own shame. If you look back, Genesis 42, verse 21, they said to one another, truly we're guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. My friends, for 20 years, they have held on to this. For two decades, they've still got shame sticking to them. And it's a truth of humanity that we tend to view others through the lens of our own guilt. See, part of the reason we so desperately need God's grace is not only for our eternal salvation, it's for our lives right here and now. It's for our relationships because we cannot give to others what we ourselves refuse to receive. How can I give grace and forgiveness to other people when I won't take it myself? when I'm cherishing my own animosity, when I won't receive the grace of God. And so that's where Joseph's brothers are. They are assuming there must be a bitter hostility still in Joseph, and it makes you want to weep. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. And then they say, and now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. (laughs) Don't forget Jacob, our buffer. And of course, Joseph wept. They confess, but they couch their confession in a cockamamie story about Jacob commanding forgiveness because they actually think dad was the only reason that Joseph forgave them in the first place. Dad was the only reason he's not cleaning their clocks. They're just seeing Joseph through the lens of their own shame. But watch this. It says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I want you to note three things related to Joseph this morning, and this is number one. Note the tears of Joseph. The tears of Joseph. Of Joseph. He had every reason to weep many years earlier in his life for all the mistreatment and the abuse and the false testimony that was given against him. He had every reason to cry out. But you know what's interesting in the story? When Joseph weeps, it is always for other people, it's never for himself. You don't find Joseph weeping in the pit, although his brothers say they plead, he pleaded with them, but you don't see him weeping in the pit, weeping when he's sold off into slavery. Don't see him weeping when he ends up in prison after being falsely accused in Potiphar's house. You don't see weeping in Joseph until he sees his brothers and he weeps for them. And over and over, when we see the weeping of Joseph, and this guy's an emotional guy, he's gotta be a four on the Enneagram scale. This guy, every single time he weeps, he's weeping for other people. 
He had such a heart for his brutish brothers, brothers who didn't get it, but something else. Joseph had faith. If you look back at chapter 49, verse 23, and Jacob is blessing his son Joseph, and he says, the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. And we noted Wednesday night, Jacob's talking about his other sons and their attack on Joseph. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile, speaking of Joseph's integrity and, and his righteousness. But note this, Jacob says, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you. The blessed distinction of Joseph was his faith. He had faith in the one Jacob called the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And it's because Joseph trusted in the Lord that he did not weep for himself, that his weeping was only ever for others. Because he trusted in the Lord, he maintained his integrity. Because he trusted in the shepherd, the stone of Israel. We would say the rock of our salvation. We would say the good shepherd. That we put our trust in him and our weeping shifts. We still weep, we're still sorrowful. But guess what? Not for me, but for those who don't know Jesus for those who are lost in this world, for those who have refused his grace. Joseph had the sense of a savior God, we would say the Christ. And he knew that this God was the source of his firm, agile integrity. And that's, that's a truth not only about Joseph, but about anyone who follows the Lord. Faith in Jesus shapes us. It inspires and influences, and it motivates us into every aspect of our lives and relationships. And the more I trust in Jesus, it's not just so I become all holy myself. No, the more I trust in him, the more I can love others. The more I care for him, the more I care about what he cares about, which is other people. That changes me. It's not a one-way vertical religious experience that we're talking about here. The nature of our God washes over us, into us, through us, and out of us. And that's what it means when Paul says that he predestined that we be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. It means we become more and more like Jesus as we look to Jesus, caring about the things of Jesus. And so other people, we will weep for others. We do not weep for ourselves, but for those who are lost. Just as Joseph here wept for his brothers, the tears of Joseph. You see, that's, that's the nature of our Savior. John chapter 11, verse 33, and we noted these many uh, teachings ago. But John eleven thirty three, 33, when Jesus therefore saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him that is Lazarus? And they said, Lord, come and see. And the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? One for himself. The Bible tells us clearly when he saw Mary weeping and the Jews around her weeping, it got to him. He loves so deeply. He wept for others. He didn't weep for Lazarus. He knew he was about to raise him. 
I mean, the only possibility is he knew he was gonna raise Lazarus back to life only to have to die and go through another funeral. Maybe he was weeping a bit for that, but truly weeping because of the pain and sorrow he saw all around him. Luke 19, 41, Jesus does it again. He approached Jerusalem. He saw the city and he wept over it. He wasn't weeping for himself. He was weeping because they would reject the only salvation that they could possibly ever have. The salvation coming to them. Luke twenty two forty four. we see that being in agony, he was praying very fervently. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus wept for others, wept for the loss, felt the pain and the sorrow of our sin and lostness. And so Joseph wept because his spirit was grieved like the spirit of God. By the way, this, this word wept, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. It's not the Hebrew word for sobbing. He didn't just, Whoa! No, the word wept is yebk. And it's literally, note this, to well up tears in the eyes. That, you ever have that happen? I, every time there's a Hallmark commercial, this happens to me. The, the emotion rushes up and you cannot help it. You can't, it's just, you know, and your eyes well up with tears to the point where they're so full, they gotta go somewhere and they begin to stream down your face. This was not like Joseph's previous weeping. What do you mean? Back in Genesis 45, verse one, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him and he said, have everyone go out from me. And there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard and the household of Pharaoh heard down the street. Everybody could hear the weeping and wailing of Joseph when he finally revealed himself to his brothers. That's not this kind of weeping. Here, it's a quiet weeping. It's emotion welling up, spilling onto his cheeks. Joseph is grieved. Why is Joseph grieved? <laughs> because his brothers are still living without grace. Because his brothers still don't understand they've been forgiven. They still don't know that he loves them. They still don't believe it. It's been, again, almost 20 years. It's been 17 years since they moved down to Egypt and are living in Goshen. 17 years and they haven't gotten it? That he loves them and he cares for them and he's not just playing a game? You can hear Joseph looking at them just saying, all this time, really? You've carried this fear, you've held on to this self-blame and the dread of retribution? All this anxiety that at the moment Jacob died, you're dead? Why would anybody want to live that way? This is the world that we are in. People living lost and fearful. And the reason there's pushback when the name of Jesus is sometimes mentioned, when an invitation to a church fellowship or to a Bible study is met with resistance, the reason is because people are choosing to live in their shame. They're fearful. What will this reveal in me? And I'm spending so much time on the tears of Joseph because of the tears of the Spirit of God. We need to understand that the Spirit of God still grieves over this very thing today. By the way, he grieves not only over those who are lost, he grieves over those who are saved but aren't getting it. People who have received Jesus, accepted Jesus, claim to be Christians, 
are sealed for the day of redemption. Paul writes, Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, wait a minute, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? We understand the spirit of Christ is grieved over those who are lost. How does a follower grieve the Holy Spirit? By doubting his grace? Very simple to do. By assuming he really doesn't mean what he says? By living with the fear of punishment? Is that you? I've been saved, but maybe not. That brings tears to his eyes. That grieves the spirit of God. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love. A perfect fear, God's, or perfect love, God's perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, listen, here's the dynamic. Turn in your Bibles over to Ephesians, just for a moment. Ephesians chapter four, where in verse 30, Paul refers to, talks about grieving the spirit of God, but listen to the context of this. Ephesians four, verse 29. Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear it. Man, that's a tough verse. And again, this isn't about buying more grace. This is about being gracious because you have received grace. It's about giving out what you've been given. What if we lived this way that we never spoke a word unless it gave grace to the hearer? That we never typed out a post on Facebook unless it offered grace to those who read? That would change everything in us. And the motivation, the influence, the impetus of that, man, it's I receive grace. It's only as I receive grace that then I can give out grace. And that's where Paul continues and he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He goes on and says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Another verse that I need to look at my behavior. Am I responding this way? Is there any of this in me? Rather, having received, believed, accepted the grace of God in my life, I turn around, verse 32, Paul says, be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. The grace and forgiveness of God is the key to the whole thing. That I receive his grace, his forgiveness, as Joseph had. Joseph knew the Lord. Joseph knew the goodness of God. Therefore, he was able to be good to his brothers. And I can now have brotherly relationships that are kind and tender-hearted and forgiving rather than bitter, hard-hearted, and murderous like Cain toward Abel. Will we act like Cain or will we act like Joseph? And that's a challenge here at the end of the beginning. But how can I give mercy and kindness and grace if I myself can't or won't receive it? As I said, Joseph knew it personally. 
He'd experienced the kindness of God, even through all of his various trials. And so he could offer the same to his brothers. And I say again, the grace I receive, it isn't just for me. The grace I receive is for you. It's for my family. It's for my friends. It's for my loved ones. And it's for those whom I have yet to even meet that I might extend kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness to others. We love, again, John said, 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved us. The tears of Joseph were tears for others. Second thing to note here, the tenderness of Joseph. The tenderness of Joseph, looking now at verse 18, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. And they're shaken on the ground. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? In other words, I'm not your judge. As for you, you meant evil against me. Okay, let's call a spade a spade. Let's call a sinner a sinner and a sin a sin. You meant evil. You did wrong, no question about it. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And the many people is more than just Israel. It was preservation even for Canaanites who were suffering in the famine, even for Egyptians who were out of food. It was preservation of many. God's grace is always bigger than our immediate family, our immediate fellowship or friends. So therefore, verse 21, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What a beautiful moment of the tenderness now of Joseph. The tears of Joseph, now the tenderness of Joseph in this scene of brotherly love and affection. I love how Kidner wraps this up. He says, each sentence of this threefold reply is a pinnacle of Older Testament and New Testament faith. To leave all the writing of one's wrongs to God to see his providence even in man's malice. Ooh, that's good for right now. <laughs> God's providence even in man's malice. And to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. These are attitudes which anticipate the adjective Christian and even Christ-like. Let me let Jesus say it even further. Luke chapter six, verse 27. If you're a fast turner, turn there. Otherwise, just listen to the words of Jesus. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you'll lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same. But, Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend 
expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. See, that's Joseph. That's the behavior we see so early on in the son of Jacob. This mercy and tenderness and kind-heartedness toward those who do not deserve it, but Joseph didn't deserve it either and yet received it from the Lord. The apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, see that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. 1 Peter 4, 19, Peter says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And there is no greater example of this in all history than Joseph. Oh, wait, there's one more. One greater example, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 21, you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Joseph was most like Jesus in his tenderness toward his brothers, in his response to his family, We talked about many times how Joseph emulated Jesus in his life, was a picture or type of the coming Messiah in the way he acted and lived and behaved and the things that took place. But this is the best. This is the moment where Joseph is more like Jesus than any other time when he speaks with tenderness to his brothers. In fact, if you look at the last phrase there in verse 21, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Spoke kindly to them is literally he spoke to the heart of them. He spoke to the heart of them. It's it's the Hebrew word liba or leb, heart. He spoke to their heart. In other words, he got through. Bible says it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And it's the kindness, it's the tenderness now of Joseph that gets into his brother's hearts. Verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. That is 54 years after Jacob's death. 71 years with his extended and growing family. He was 17 when he was sent off into slavery. Another 20 years would go by. 37 when he finally met up with his family again, but God provided 71 years of togetherness and family affection and tenderness and kindness to work the way it works. It reminds me a lot of times that family conflict takes sometimes many years to resolve. Let me tell you in our fellowship, be patient, pray, be tender-hearted and kind to your family, even if there is conflict. God will resolve it given time. So Joseph's 110 years when he finally dies. In Egypt, 110 was considered the ideal lifespan. We know that because there are some 27 different ancient Egyptian historical documents that reference the age of 110 precisely as being the honorable age, and God gave that to Joseph. 
verse 23. So Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons and also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Such a picture of family blessing and, and fruitfulness for Joseph. You know, granddad with his grandkids sitting on his knees, even his great-grandkids bouncing on his knee. What a blessing. And it truly is to be a grandpa. I never thought, never had any idea what it would be like. I love it. To have them on my knees, to hear their laughter. There's nothing like the laughter of a grandkid, I'll tell you. Psalm 128, verse six says, indeed, may you see your children's children. And Proverbs 17, verse six, grandchildren are the crown of old men. Not sure I really like that one, but we'll, we'll, we'll go with it. And it's the glory of sons is their fathers. And again, if you look back at chapter 49 in the blessing of Jacob for Joseph, in verse 25, he said, by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost limit of the everlasting hills, and may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Beautiful. Well, we've seen now the tears of Joseph and the tenderness of Joseph but there's one last thing we'll note before we close this great book. The testimony of Joseph. Number three, the testimony of Joseph, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now note this. Joseph, embalmed and placed in a coffin, but apparently not buried not entombed. In fact, the old rabbis teach that his coffin remained visible, that it was above ground. And when a child saw it, they would ask, why is Joseph's coffin still here? And the parent could answer to remind us that we're going home. Joseph's testimony. Bones in a coffin. The testimony, take me up, take me home and of course, Exodus 13, verse 19, just a peek ahead, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Think about this. Of all the patriarchs, if we were to line them up, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, let's just consider those four. I would say that Joseph by far presents the most godly picture. He's the most faithful. He's the most tenderhearted. We don't see him sinning. He's the most after God's own heart, the most Christ-like. Now, not to cast dispersion on Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, but Joseph. 
was in so many ways such a godly man, and yet he never had direct vision of God, never had a revelation, never had even conversation with God, at least as far as we see in the scriptures. There is no evidence or or no reference to him hearing the Lord or seeing the Lord as Jacob did, Isaac did, Abraham did, and yet Joseph was the most godly. And in his godliness, by faith, he didn't even live as long as his father's. Abraham got 175 years. Isaac got 180 years. Jacob got 145 years. And Joseph got 110. After the tears and the tenderness, the testimony of Joseph at his death was what I call his final act of faith. In fact, that's what the Bible calls it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 tells us, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. What were the orders? Look at him again. God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The orders, God will It's not just take care of you. No, the word there is visit. God will visit you, and when he does, he will take you up. He will take me home, home to the promised land. So put this together with me as we conclude this. So ends the book of beginnings with a perfect, tearful, tender testimony. A family restored. See, that's the heart of God is restoration. Redemption, we see this now. The family finally pulled back together and restored. That's how this part of the story will end. But it testifies of an even greater truth. This moment of Joseph's faith as he says, take me up, take me up. We recognize that this book began with creation, but it ends with a coffin. It began with the brightness of God's glory, let there be light. It ends in the darkness of of a casket. It begins with a living God. It ends with a dead man. (laughs) It's the journey from Eden to embalming. And what we see, the message at the end of the beginning is absolutely clear. Romans 5, 12, therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned even Joseph, and Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Makes you wanna weep. Even Joseph, this stellar example of righteousness and tenderness and grace and faith and forgiveness, even Joseph couldn't escape the wages of sin. But Joseph had faith for another day. 1 Corinthians 15.22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so while Genesis ends in death, the death of Joseph, put there, embalmed and placed in that coffin, the next book is about deliverance. The next book, (laughs) this is a great escape, the exodus from bondage. We will make the application, the exodus from the bondage of sin and of death 
And Joseph's dying words epitomize the hope and expectation that this is just the end of the beginning. When again he says, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up from here. Note this, don't miss this, last thought. They laid Joseph's bones in a coffin. And it reminds me that Jesus was laid in the tomb of another Joseph. You see, Joseph's bones would be placed in the coffin, eventually carried up to the promised land and buried at Shechem. Jesus' body was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and he was only there three days before he rose from the dead. He did not stay. The testimony of Joseph is, take my bones home. The testimony of Jesus, resurrection. Life everlasting. God will surely visit you. He's coming. He's gonna carry me up. He's gonna take this old bag of bones and he's gonna bring me up and you, by faith in Jesus, to a glorious new beginning. Are you ready? Are you good to go? Have you received the grace of God, forgiveness, salvation? Don't stay lost. Don't cherish bitterness. Let it go and put your faith in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, who is both the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Genesis, for all of these truths, these histories, these stories. We thank you for what they have shown us of you. We thank you that we've been able to watch you at work, to see your hand in this world. And we thank you for all the truth that reminds us that your hand, Lord Jesus, is still in this world, that you still visit your people and a day is coming when that visitation will be known by everyone who trusts you. Lord, I pray that you will teach us to weep for the lost, to truly feel a burden in our hearts for those who don't know grace, who don't understand forgiveness, who don't know you, Jesus. Lord, give us a tenderness one to another, even as you have shown tenderness in our lives. And may our testimony, Lord, be of the risen Christ until our very last breath or you call us home. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 